All right, what is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Ironside Podcast with Tom Dinkelman and me, Brett Kane. How's it going, everybody? Also joining us is a man who needs no introduction. We have Joe Kent, a father, a hero, a future congressman in our midst tonight. Joe, it's great having you on. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, guys. So, Joe, obviously, you, you've done so much in, in a relatively short amount of time. What has been most recently the, the biggest highlight for you? You've got a story, and we'll get into to that, but let's work our way backwards. What, what most recently has, has been a standout for you? Yes, yeah, so really, since I started running for Congress, I've been uh, very encouraged with all the bad news there is out there with the state of the, you know, our economy, the state of our country, I'd say the state of the, the national discourse that we have. I've been incredibly encouraged um, in my local community, just seeing how many people are ready for a change, ready to become politically activated, that are ready to get out there and make a difference, whether it's volunteering for my campaign, getting out there and protesting all of the draconian lockdowns and mandates that Jay Inslee is putting on us, um, or really just building communities of like-minded individuals. That's something that I think uh, we've kind of been lacking for far, so far too long. I think some institutions have been better about it, some worse, but I think in the conservative space, we've, we've kind of lacked some of that. And so seeing everybody kind of have this great rude awakening that I think we had in 2020, um, seeing what's coming from that, I'm, in, I'm encouraged. We're definitely in a hard part right now. We're in a struggle but no good things have ever come without a struggle. So I, I'm, I am encouraged overall, I would say, by like the state of the, the grassroots conservative movement right now. What made you, what was the final straw where you said, no, I'm going to go do this and make a difference? Well, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, the easiest one to point to is when my representative, who is supposed to be a Republican, Jamie Herrera Butler, voted for the impeachment of President Trump. Um, prior to that, I was... Uh, prior to the election of 2020, I had an invitation to go back and work in a second Trump administration, um, kind of in the national security realm. Uh, so I kind of plan on getting back into government after you know, 21 plus years in the military, um, getting back in that way. And then with the way the, with the way the election went, with the way certification went, and then the impeachment vote, I, when she voted to impeach Trump, actually, when she voted to certify the election, I was incredibly disappointed. I mean, because of where our district is, as, as you guys know, we're we're sandwiched right between Portland and right between Olympia and Seattle, but we're this bastion of you know conservatives. But you can't have weak conservatives in a neighborhood like that. I think it's all well and good to be sort of a wishy-washy conservative in a red state because it's not that important. But if you're a conservative in Washington, you better be ready to fight every single day. And when Herrera Butler folded on multiple key issues, but you know really coming to a head with voting to certify and then voting for impeachment, that's when I said, okay. If there's nobody else that's going to step forward and challenge her, then I'll do it. I, I literally had to Google how do you run for Congress, but that was kind of my hey, I'm gonna, I can't just sit here and complain about it on the internet and with my friends. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something, make a difference. Yeah, yeah, at least try, you know. Can you generally actually lump them into two two categories anymore, conservative and liberal, or Republican and Democrat, or is it? I feel like it's even more polarizing than that. I think so. Yeah, I think the old way that we describe politics is kind of not appropriate for the times we're living in. So, I mean, like what does what, I mean, I'll, I'll even define myself as a as a conservative sometimes for the sake of brevity. But I think we're at the point where there's very little left to conserve because of how bad things have gotten. Um, and so I, I, I would say, like, we're, you know, populists, we're nationalists. Um, we want to bring our country back to the place that it was and put us on a trajectory going forward that has individual liberties in mind and then you know, really sanctifies what it means to be an American and to look after our own people. Um, and then the left, I think, is, is fragmented as well. I think you have some well-meaning people that define themselves somewhere as like very socially tolerant people um, who generally view everything through a positive lens. But I think those people, their intentions have been hijacked by a much more nefarious group of folks who are willing to burn cities, willing to intimidate people willing to use every uh, tool of government against Americans in the way that this has never happened before in our country. So I think you're right. I think saying left or right or conservative Democrat, I think those are, uh, I think those are a bit outdated. I think sometimes it even feels more like uh, God fearing versus man fearing, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great simple way to put it. I mean, really, yeah. Do you, do you believe that this country is, that this country is the one country that, you know, was founded so that God given rights could be protected or do you think that this is just some 
place that exists and we came up with some laws that can be changed at, at a whim. So yeah, I think the God fearing versus man fearing is that's, that's accurate. You know, we were kind of talking about this offline beforehand, but one of the things that, that I love about you is, is your willingness to stand and fight. And, and on your website, you say it so well that, that you, you know, are, are here to fight because you like to fight and you know how to fight. How is the political arena different and how is it similar to, to your you know, 20 year career uh, in, in the military in the army and, and special forces? Have, have you learned anything from that? Because obviously it's a, it's a different theater. Yeah, it's a different theater, but I, I kind of view it as a continuation. I mean, the, the war on terror, we could talk about that. It started out with very noble intent, um, but then it went off the rails for a lot of different reasons, mostly hubris and greed. Um, but I had a really interesting perspective on, on the front lines of it in special operations. So I got to do a lot of not just kinetic go out and, you know, what you envision when you hear special forces kicking bad guys doors, do all that type of stuff. That doesn't apply right now to what we're doing. Um, but the going out and having to work with a local populace, having to figure out, you know, what the key centers of gravity are, who the key players are, um, and then really look at the way that the left, because the left is running a totalitarian style regime of control against the American people. This is the exact same thing that the, the communists did in China, the communists did in Russia. It's the same thing really that a lot of these totalitarian regimes in the third world and then even Al-Qaeda and even the Iranians, this exact same techniques, the way they've uh, taken their ideology, they have demanded compliance from a large swath of the populace and then you have violent actors who will go out and you know commit violence to intimidate people, to coerce people. Um, and then you have their political wing that will come in and say, hey, this was all justified, or maybe this isn't that bad. We need to change some laws here. So unfortunately, tragically, when I came back to the Northwest after I had to step away from service uh, overseas and seeing the way that the riots were weaponized by the left, I was like, you know, unfortunately, I've seen this movie before. It, it you know, made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up seeing it where I grew up, seeing it where my parents still live. Um, but I, I find it very applicable um, to the fight that we're in right now because the left the left is not playing politics as usual. This is not Republicans versus Democrats of the 80s, you know, where I think both parties then generally wanted the same things for the country. They wanted the same things for their kids. This is you know, one side wants complete and total control of your life and they want and they demand submission. So unfortunately, I, as tragic as it is, I, I feel compelled to serve because I'm like, hey, I spent 21 years doing this, especially on the intelligence and the information side. And that's where that's where the fight is right now. There's some that'll say that we can't vote ourselves out of this problem. I mean, obviously you don't believe that, otherwise you wouldn't be running, but how do we fix it? Yeah, I mean, I understand where people are coming from when they say that, <laughs> um, but when but when you say that you are to a certain extent taking everything that this country that, that this country is, that we love so much and we hold so dear, and you're kind of throwing it by the wayside. I don't think we can solely vote our way out of this. It has to be, we have to have a great cultural awakening, especially with people that define themselves as God-fearing or as conservatives. We have to have a cultural uh, arise or awakening where we say, hey, it's not good enough for us anymore just to focus on our families and our communities and church and going to work every day uh, and kind of keeping to ourselves. We really can't do that anymore. We need political activists on the right. We need community organizers on the right. That's something that we've mocked the left for for a very long time. And the left has used their, used their politics as a religion. So I do think it has to be holistic, but we can vote our way to give ourselves a fighting chance. And I think that's what 2022 is all about. I mean, the left right now has so much control over every branch of government. They have so much control over the culture, over big tech, over the media that we do have to vote our way into giving ourselves enough space to fight. And that's going to start with taking back the house and taking back the Senate. I believe in this country way too much to just walk away from it. I know people, I, for some reason, like national divorce was trending today on Twitter um, as you know, Twitter's a bunch of nonsense anyway, for the most part, but it was, it was trending and people are talking about this. Oh, we need to have some sort of a national divorce. We need to just sort of throw away America because it's hard right now. And, and I couldn't disagree with that more. If it's hard right now, we need more people to get involved because all those other things of a national divorce or completely checking out from politics, like that's fine. You're, you're a free person. You can check out from politics, but politics isn't going to check out from you before you know it, where you're going to be completely and totally surrounded even more than we are. So right now. Well, it's a hard times to make strong men, right? Mm -hmm. There's that's no right. question about that. And so yeah, speaking of that, so as you've gone through this, uh, this run and, and the, and the, and even your time in the military, 
How, how has that translated into your time as a father? Because I know that's got to be weighing heavy on you as well. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, so my kids are the whole reason why, why I'm in this. So for people who don't know my a full story, I was in the military for a little over uh, 20 years. I uh, did about a year in the CIA afterwards. My late wife was also in the military. She was killed fighting ISIS in Syria in 2019. So that was right after Trump tried to get our troops out of Syria the first time. The, the bureaucratic apparatus kept them there. Um, she was killed, three other great Americans. Uh, so I resigned from the CIA, came back home, wanted to move my kids back here to get them closer to my family. So pretty much for me, from the time our late wife was killed, I was like, okay, I have to just focus on my kids, stop getting essentially shot at for a living. But then 2020 happened and then everything we just discussed has happened around me. And so I was like at an inflection point where the future that I hand over to my kids is, is it's, it's being laid right now. And I'm not going to be able to look my kids in the eyes in 10 years, 15 years, when they're old enough to ask me really hard questions like, hey, why did our mom, why did she get killed for this country? And if this country is heading the direction it's heading in right now, I personally, I, I, I don't have the, the, the courage to look them in the eyes and say, well, uh, you know, I, I saw all this coming, but I was just, I couldn't be bothered to go take action and to do something. So really everything that I learned in the military about fortitude, you know, about being a team player, about putting one foot in front of the other, no matter how bad it, it, it hurts right now, keeping that vision of service, keeping that vision of, you know, a mission that's going to make a better tomorrow for my kids. Uh, that's really, I think, prepared me for this moment. I mean, sometimes, you know, you guys are fathers, you know, sometimes you feel utterly unprepared to be a father. Um, but that's prepared me as much as I possibly could right now. And, and really, every step I take, um, is, it's for my kids. And they're what they're, you know, what really drives me forward. And, and you have talked about that too. And, and I love that you have a vision of making a better future for your kids and your grandkids. And I just, I honor you as not only as a, a fellow serviceman, but someone who is a, a worthy husband and, and father. And you know, we absolutely, our hearts go out to, to you and the boys with the passing of Shannon and what you're doing now ensures that her sacrifice is not in vain. And yeah, absolutely, brother. Um, You know, one of the things that you said is that we're seeing a a pretty big mass exodus from these coastal states to places like Idaho, Montana, Texas. But in 10 years, we're getting a bunch of Utah. Yeah, yeah, Utah. (laughs) Um, But the fight is is going to come to their doorsteps as well. And and I'm so impressed that you're, you're sticking it out. So what does that look like on the ground? How can conservative people, God-fearing people, start yeah. making a difference uh, in, in their homes and communities in, in places like where we live in, in Washington and, and other places? Yeah, I, I think the big thing is stand and fight where you're at. I mean, but you have to be tactically smart about it. I, I think that a lot of the big cities right now are not in good places to be. Um, so I do understand, like I, I, I left Portland. I went back to Portland briefly after my late wife was killed to get my kids closer to my parents. But after being there, especially when the riots broke out, I was like, this is, I can't, I can't, I can't save this right here. So I went right across the river for folks that are familiar with the area to a place that's traditionally a conservative area. Um, even though it's under the boot of, of Jay Inslee and of Olympia and of Seattle and all that, uh, but I, I know there's like-minded conservatives there. So I think the biggest thing, it's very basic. I think conservatives in general, God-fearing people, we at least have a church community, you know, the guys that your kids play with. And, and I think taking those relationships to the next level and saying, hey, are we registered? Give them access to candidates, give them access to information, but make sure they're politically engaged. Because I, I, I talk to people all the time that they're like, hey, I've never... You know, they're my age, they're in their 40s, they're in their 30s, they've been busy with their families, with kids, with work and all that, and just hustling and grinding. But they're like, hey, I've never been registered to vote. I've just never really cared before. And I hear that so often. But man, when you go and you, you talk to the left and you look at the way that those guys operate, like it is a religion. Then a lot of them, a lot of the hardcore ones, are not even the hardcore ones, they've been involved since before they were 18. And they get out there in the community organized, they pound on doors. It's easier in urban centers. It's harder in the suburbs. It's, it's harder in rural communities. But we do have the church as backbones, as the backbone. And I, uh, I get frustrated sometimes with some uh, church leaders because they'll say, hey, I don't want to get involved in politics because it's going to interfere with our overall mission of, of you know, preaching the word of God. And I understand that to a certain extent, but I'm like, look, 
everything that's happening in society right now, the last institution that the left hasn't taken over is the American family and faithful American families are what they fear the most. So we, for purely defensive purposes, we need the churches to get involved and start to have churches, you know, registering people to vote, you know, not necessarily telling them how to vote, but, you know, give them access to candidates and information. So I, I think that's key. And then get involved in your local Republican party, become a precinct chair chairman. It's very easy. It doesn't, doesn't cost you any money. Um, it just takes a little bit of your time. Go uh, volunteer at the ele local election offices, especially in Washington State. We know there's issues with the election in Washington State. We've been doing the we've been doing 2020 in Washington and Oregon for like 15 years. So we do the unsolicited mail out ballots and we do Dominion tabulations. The best chance we have for a fair and free election is getting good people in as election observers, and that's something you can go through some training um, and you can volunteer to do that. The more of our people we get in there the more that the left knows that they have regular hardworking Americans watching them and it makes it much harder to play any games. Um, there's, a, I think, really just community organization and getting involved is very key. These nonpartisan elections that we have in the odd years, like we just had in November of this, this last year, 21, they're incredibly important. The school boards, I mean, the, the what is it, the cemetery committees, all these different, you look at them, you're like, what, how important is this position? It's useless. Like, it's not paid. What do these guys even do? The Democrats have been running the tables on those for years, and they control basically the entire architecture of towns and townships and all that. So I think getting people involved at those levels as well is just it's just really key. Joe, it also seems that as of late that we've given a voice uh, to the weak, the uh, almost the cowardice. They, they found a way to, especially through social media, to be extremely loud. How do you... How do you inspire strong uh, men and women with with good values? How do you inspire them to be loud? Yeah, I mean, especially with, with social media is just so toxic. I mean, if if people can unplug from social media, like I, I would encourage them to do it. Like I wasn't really too active on social media before I started running for Congress. Now I try to offensively use it as a weapon. Um, but I do think there's other social media platforms that are coming out there that are, that are more, you know, pro-conservative, more pro-true free speech. That's key. But I think people just got to understand, look, if you come out as overtly conservative, overtly God-fearing, you're, you're going to be attacked. Just, you just got to understand that. Like people are not polite. They're not nice. They're going to say horrible things about you. They're going to say horrible things about your family. Put that on like it's a shield. they would just ignore you, but they're going to come at you. And so I think people just need to realize that and then, you know, make alliances with other like-minded conservatives and, and don't let your, don't let your brothers and sisters in arms get ganged up on, whether it's on the internet or whether it's at a school board meeting um, or whether it's in your communities. I think, like you said, giving a voice to the weak, this whole COVID pandemic has done just that. I mean, a, a method of tyranny is giving power to people who are normally powerless. And this is just human nature. You know, cashiers, they don't have a lot of power in real society. Flight attendants don't have a lot of power in real society. You make them the enforcers of these little petty rules, like you have to wear your mask, social distancing, and all that type of stuff. You've empowered them now. And, and a lot of them want nothing to do with it. And they're great people. And they're just trying to do their jobs. But there's a lot of them that take a lot of pleasure in getting to tell people what to do. And that's just another way that our society is being divided. And so I think even having nice, polite conversations with some of them occasionally is a good thing, especially you guys probably aren't dealing with it down there in Utah because you guys are a little more sane. But up in Washington, there is some people that you go into the stores and they want to get up in your face about a mask or you know this or that with social distancing. And if you just have a rational conversation with them, like, hey, it's a mandate. It's not a law. You can't make me wear it. You know, that type of stuff. I, I think it's key. But just I, I think conservatives, God-fearing people, we have to know that that's, that's coming our way. But these are just the times we live in. So my question is, how do you decide, you know, I, I'm looking on, on your website now, and it's awesome, because you, you address all these things so succinctly, you know, so clearly and concisely, where do you decide what issues you're, you're willing to compromise on and, and where you're going to stand firm? Because, you know, normal people like us, we're happy to, to get along with other people, but it seems like the other side is totally unwilling to even hear us out. That's the thing, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not an unreasonable person. I, I can, you know, give and take, I can negotiate with people, but it's gotta be a two way street. And just for far too long, it hasn't been reciprocated. Like the woman I'm running against, Jamie Herr Butler, Republican, 
You know, I can I can run down all of her really big uh, offensive, horrible votes. She actually has a worse record than Liz Cheney. However, what she says frequently is, look, I have to go when I when I'm in Congress, I have to continually compromise with these people. She calls herself a problem solver. She's part of the problem solver committee. And these people pride themselves on they come up with solutions. And it sounds great. You're like, well, actually, that sounds very moderate. OK, that, that makes sense to me. But then when you look at the true record of it, the full scope of it, it's always Republicans that are the ones that make the compromise. So I'll start making compromises when the other side reciprocates. And that hasn't happened, I, I don't think, in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, it especially hasn't happened in the post-Trump era. When the left gets power, they absolutely use it as a tool. They bludgeon us with it. They overstep. They encroach on people's individual liberties. And that's that's part of their program. That's what they're doing. They're, they're not shy about it. They tell us this. And yet we still have elected Republicans who are supposed to be our, our saviors in government, obviously. Um, that's how they build themselves anyways. That's why they ask us for money. Like you, you, you have to, you have to elect me. You have to give me money. Otherwise the radical left's just going to take us over. And then they come back a couple months later and they're like, look, man, I had to vote for build back better or the infrastructure bill, or I had to vote for the COVID database to track everybody's vaccinations that I had to do it. You know, that's how I compromise. It doesn't work. So I, for right now, I mean, especially if, if, uh, things continue to trend positive, positively with my campaign and I, and I get elected, like, we're not going to be in the surrender business. We're not going to be in the compromise business for quite a while until we see some good faith from their side. I noticed uh, you also mentioned that you don't think that Congress should be able to dabble in the stock market while they're, <laughs> while they're elected officials. It's funny because my brother and I had this conversation the other day yeah. about how it just seems so wrong because it can be manipulated. How do you fix that? Can you, can you actually make that a, a thing? I mean, I think we need to, like right now, our institutions at every level, whether it's Congress, whether it's our elections, whether it's even the military now, uh, the American people just don't trust the institutions, and rightly so, but these institutions are incredibly important. If we lose faith in our institutions, then we're going to lose faith in this whole thing that is America, and America is the last hope for humanity, then we're all screwed. So, I mean, I, I think we have to try. I think we could make really specific regulations that, hey, if you are in Congress, if you are in any elected official, if you're any elected official at the federal level that's going to have access to classified information, all of your stock money, all of your stock trades have to go into some sort of a, a blind trust where you can't manipulate them. Um, we actually had regulations about this when I worked in the intelligence community. Um, I was a paramilitary guy, so none of the stuff I ever touched really dealt with international finance. I was going after terrorists. However, I had to sign pieces of paper that said, hey, I'll never take classified information and gain money off of it. And I guarantee you, if me as a GS-12 at the CIA would have done it, they would have nailed me to the wall. However, for some reason, these elected officials, I mean, we caught four of them red-handed that received the brief that the COVID pandemic was happening in January of 2020, who made hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of stock swaps. It was two Republicans and two Democrats. So it's a bipartisan thing, right? Um, we caught them red-handed and there's been no consequences for that. I mean, you have representatives that go into Congress as relatively normal middle-class Americans, and then they get shot out the other end 10, 15 years on, and they're multimillionaires. I mean, like that, that blatant corruption just, it, I mean, it has to be called out and has to be stopped. See, you, you've got a, a great answer for, for anything that they can, can bring to the table. That's awesome, Joe. What do you think that is the most pressing issue, if you had to narrow it down to one, for the state of Washington in particular? I mean, right now it's the mandates. I actually just sat on a uh, Zoom call that the public wasn't allowed to make any comment on, but we could listen. Um, about whether or not Washington's uh, Department of Health is going to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine for all kids in public school and in private school. So essentially making the COVID vaccine the same as all of the standard vaccines to get your kid into a public or a private school. I mean, now that, they, so that Inslee started out this fall when he fired hundreds, thousands, we don't, we don't really know, of state workers over the vaccine mandates. He got ahead of Joe Biden, completely unconstitutional, should be illegal fired all those people. Um, and then a bunch of private companies followed suit. You know, I know nurses that have been fired. I know accountants that have been fired, folks in the tech sector. So, so many people have been told, hey, take the jab or lose your job. And people have lost their jobs. Or people have been like, hey, uh, I guess I'll just take the jab. And now there's all these different, you know, health ramifications coming from the COVID vaccine because it's an experimental thing still. You know, and people have been forced into making this, this horrible decision. And now they're coming after our kids. And so for me, I've said really from the beginning, the way that the COVID vaccine has been mandated on people, it's just gauging 
who will comply or not. Again, this is where some of my experience in the military comes over. The biggest issue you have of trying to control a population from a counterinsurgency perspective is you need to know the intentions of all the people in the population. And that's very difficult to do. Um, however, if you have something that's very binary, like a COVID vaccine, you don't need to know that person's political affiliation. You can just say, you take the jab or you don't. And if you comply, I don't really care what your political affiliation is. I got you to comply. You, you, you jumped when I said, when I said jump, like, it's not a big deal. Like, I got you. If you didn't comply, now I know exactly where to focus all the different tools I have in my toolbox to go after you. And they've gone through and they've done this to multiple thousands of people in the state. And then now they're going to do it to our kids because that's the next test. Okay, you got you got uh, vaccinated. Now do your kids. Prove your loyalty to your kids. And I mean, that's to me, that's just absolute insanity and has to be stopped. So I think right now, number one is, is the vaccine mandates. From the federal perspective, there's not a ton that I could do as a congressman. Our state legislature has way more power on that. And, and God bless some of those guys like Jim Walsh that go out there and fight them. Um, but from a federal perspective, what I could do, and I, and I talk about this all the time, is I would cut off every single penny of federal funding going to Jay Inslee, and I don't care what it's for. And I and people are like, oh my God, the people of Washington, your, your district, they're going to hate you because you're going to cut off their money. I don't think so. If I'm fighting against the vaccines, they're going to support me, guaranteed. I'm willing to make that gamble. Cut them off and say, hey, Jay, you're not getting one more penny of federal money. If you think these vaccines are what the people, your constituents want, you go sell it to them and you pay for it. But I, I think there's a there's a clarification for a lot of people is it's not necessarily we're anti-vaccine because I don't think that's yeah. the case by any means. We're anti-mandate. Amen. Right? We're, yep. we're, we're against that mandate. That's right. So let me ask this then along those lines. How far do you hold your virtues uh, before everything's taken away? Or do you just go until everything's taken away? That's exactly right. And I, and I think that's where we're at right now. Like you you, you can't continue to let them take and take and take and hope like right now i feel like there's a lot of people that are just hoping for like the pandemic to end they're hoping for the vaccines to end and it's like you at some point you have to take ownership like they're they're coming for you there there does have to be a, a point where you say no more and i think that's where we're at right now people have to stop complying and they have to start getting politically active well there's always going to be a variance there's always going to be a variance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so right. at what point do we, do we move on and say hey this, it's our lives. I'm going to live it the way I want to live it. Yeah. Uh, and you, you can't take the, these are my, these are my rights, not my privileges, my rights. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And, and we just, have, I, I think those of us that can see that we have to explain that to people. Cause there's a lot of folks, I think that they, when COVID started, they thought, Hey, the government wouldn't lie to us. Like this is all, if we all comply, then it'll just be over. And man, we're, we're what, two plus years into this whole thing. And like, it's not, it's not going to be over until we push back against it. And that's what just what, that's what people have to know. I mean, they, we've seen this with Omicron and now whatever other variants going to come, there'll be another variant leading into the 22, leading into the 22 midterms. And then there's going to be another massive variant going into the 24 presidential elections. It just, it, unless we, the people stop playing along. Uh, until that uh, the administration fixes it right before the the election, before the president. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Magically. Yeah. You know, I, I work for the school district up here. And, oh, wow. and, and fortunately, I, I was granted uh, an exemption for that. Oh, but yeah, I've got friends working at the Department of Health and it I mean, it's it's a really, really bad situation. I, and you've got young kids. I mean, are, are they in school? Are schools better down there? What's going on there? No, they're not. That's a short answer. I mean, the public schools already had a lot of problems with the, the Planned Parenthood sex ed, the, uh, the CRT or whatever we call them, Washington State, the ADI. So I, I didn't put my kids in, in public schools, unfortunately, which I think is tragic because I, I went to public school. I went to Portland public schools and I thought I got a pretty good education. You know, and there was some left, leftist type of stuff there a little bit. But we still had open, honest discussions, and I felt like it was a good education. And before the times we live in, I always thought I would just send my kids to public school because it's you know you get more experience with a, a broader swath of the uh, the population. But with everything going on, this is even you know kind of pre-COVID, I decided to put them into a private Christian school. Unfortunately, what happened is the state is coming after the Christian schools. I mean, and they said so today in this Zoom call I was on because they want to mandate private schools adhere to this too if they go through with it. But the, with the mask mandates, they came and the mask mandates and a lot of the social distancing and all that type of stuff, they first implemented them with the public schools. A lot of the private schools did the right thing and said, hey, we're staying open. Kids don't need to wear masks. We want business as usual. Um, parents, we felt like we had a lot of say in that because we could go in the school boards and it's, it's more of a, um, 
it's more of an honest customer, you know, uh, type of relationship there because we're paying to send our kids there. However, in, in the last six months, we had the state really go after, I won't name the school's name, but they really went after the, and put pressure on the school. I don't know exactly to what degree, but basically we went from not wearing masks to the next day, they're like, your kids have to go back in masks. So I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do it. So I pulled my kids out, homeschooled for a little bit. My six-year-old felt like we were punishing him. So did a lot of research and found another school right now that's holding strong um, with no mask. Another Christian school that's holding strong with no masks. But um, this has also been another chance where I've actually built some community off this because there was a lot of us that had our kids in this one Christian school. And then when the mask mandate came back on the school, I would say about 30 or so families, we all pulled our kids out and then we were all kind of pooling resources for, you know, like a homeschool co-op. And then some of us, Hey, we heard this other school down here. It's a solid Christian school and they're not making the kids wear masks. So it, it, it's created this network, you know, through tragedy, but from there we've actually, you know, reached out gotten to know more of our neighbors, gotten more people politically active. So tried to make something positive out of it, but it's a, uh, it's, it's a bad situation. I actually was uh, at a bunch of different school board meetings last year, and then this year, and I, I think Washington State has just completely lost its mind. I mean, they want to put vaccine clinics in some of these high schools, you know, with that whole mature minor, um, mature minor definition they have where the, the kids that are 13 and up don't have to tell their parents about medical decisions. So now you have kids that, that potentially can get vaccinated. The schools say it won't happen, but the vaccine clinics right there in the schools that the kids can get vaccinated without their parents' consent. Um, I, I just think the whole thing is completely out of control. I'm a huge proponent for school choice, school vouchers, even from the federal side, if we could just offer the money or a tax deduction to the parents, just to give them, just to give them some leverage. I, I know there's so many parents out there that like they can't afford private schools and they work and they can't homeschool. And so they're stuck with like, they have to mask their kids pretty soon. They're going to be told they have to give their kids the vaccine. And then there's the, the CRT aspect, the Planned Parenthood sex ed aspect. So I think some form of school choice, school vouchers, would be incredibly uh, valuable. Um, we, I would like to have it where the, the state money follows the kids. I couldn't do that from the federal side. I'd need cooperation from the state government for that, but at least a federal program where parents have the option regardless of what craziness the states are doing. Man, that's awesome. I, I'm so glad that that you've been able to consistently improvise and, and adapt and, and overcome Taking it back a little bit, so so you were actually in selection on September 11th, 2001, correct? I was, yeah. I was in Special Forces selection then. Yep. What what was that like? I know it's a totally different army now than than what it was, but <laughs> how was that? Well, I mean, it was kind of wild because I mean, you got the 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 late 90s army was, you know, we had been kind of a peacetime army for quite a while, and I, I came in in 1998. And so we had some veterans. Uh, I went to Ranger Battalion. So we had some veterans from the Mogadishu battle, like one or two of them. And they were like gods because they had been in this massive, massive firefight. We had some guys that had jumped into Panama, a couple of guys that did Desert Storm, these very brief engagements. Um, so the, the military wasn't even considering doing multiple years of, of war the way that we eventually did. So when 9-11 happened, I was in selection and I kind of thought it was like a training thing. Because we had, done, I think we had just done like a PT test and maybe one of our initial you know, road marches or whatever. And they called us on the classroom and they said, like, America's under attack. And I had already been to Ranger School and in some other training scenarios where they have like a scenario where they say, like, okay, America's under attack and now we're going to do this and that. And so I, I kind of thought, I was like, is this a, are they messing with us? Is this part of the whole, whole thing? But then after, you know, a couple hours, they had everybody who had family in New York and Washington, D.C. This is before cell phones were a big thing. Uh, go to the offices and they open up the pay phones and let them call their families. They let us watch the news here and there. Um, I didn't realize until a month later when I got out the full gravity of, of what had happened. Um, but it really, I, I think even for the first like year, year and a half of the war, we all kind of thought there was going to be an initial push into Afghanistan. We are going to go, you know, go after the Taliban, go after Al-Qaeda real quick, but then get in, get out. So I actually, um, when I got back from Special Forces selection, um, we went and packed our war pallets at Ranger Battalion because we thought we were going to jump in uh, to Rhino, uh, which 3rd Ranger Battalion ended up doing. I was in second. So we watched that on CNN and I was like, oh, crap, man. I think I just missed the war for my 20 years in the military because my, my frame of reference was like Panama, Grenada. Desert Storm. And so I, I just went to the Special Forces Q course, but then Afghanistan kept going. And by the time I got out of the Q course, the Iraq war had kicked off and I got to the Special Forces group and, and they were like, oh yeah, the war's not over. This, this is strap in. We're just getting started. So yeah, it was a wild ride. 
Yeah, you know, man, that's awesome. And and thank you again for everything you've done and are doing for this country. I I enlisted in the Washington State National Guard uh, three years ago. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously older, but I mean, there, there are kids there, you know, that, that I'm working with who were born after September 11th, you know, so it's, it's really interesting to see what are you doing to help your, your kids love this country and and what it stands for and not forget their mom's sacrifice, you know, the the war on terror, world war two, you know, all these things. What, what, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, so the big things, Pledge of Allegiance, you know, what makes America unique, you know, rights given by God, not by man. And this is the one, the one government, the Constitution is the one document that really says, hey, we, we are going to protect God-given rights. We didn't, men didn't give other men rights. God gives it to us, but this is the country that's going to protect it. I'm trying to, trying to, you know, instill that as much as I can into a four and a six-year-old. But I think the Pledge of Allegiance is, is key. The traditions, understanding what Independence Day is all about. Obviously, Memorial Day is very special for us, very somber for us. Veterans Day. Um, I, you know, I, 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 my kids, if you hear them talk, they talk about people going to war all the time um, because that was their life. I was deploying a lot when they were very young. You know, their mom deployed. Um, we're just we're still a military family. And so that patriotism is something that I really want to keep instilled into them. Um, I, public schools have taken a lot of it out. I'm, you know, very grateful for the Christian school they're in right now. They say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, you know, very patriotic for Veterans Day and for Memorial Day. So I think those traditions are absolutely key. Go ahead, Tom. Please. Well, I, I think that's awesome. I, I am so grateful that you're doing that because the Pledge of Allegiance is is so important. I mean, just just that one simple thing that we took yeah. for granted growing up. Uh, I remember, you know, even now working in schools and 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 they'll say it, but you know, kids are texting or you know sitting down or or whatever. Yeah. So we're we're losing that. But I I think it's so important to remember that it really doesn't take a, a lot to make a difference. You know, if you look at things like even in in shepherding. You know, there's one sheepdog for however, you know, 100, 200 sheep. So if, if we can just get a couple good kids, a couple good congressmen, yep. a couple good dads, that's right. And we can make a, a, some real waves. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's 100%. I mean, people need to recognize that, uh, you know, courage is contagious and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't take much. I mean, you can show a little bit of leadership in, in a very simple way. The example you set every day for your kids, obviously, is probably the most important thing that you can do. But then just getting people together and, you know, organizing as a community, whether it's for politics, whether it's for preparedness, I, I think that's absolutely key. It's easy to just stay wrapped up in your in your everyday lives, especially nowadays. I think we've, we've lost a lot of the sense of community that I think our parents and our grandparents generation just sort of had ingrained into it. Um, but bringing some of that back more, I think, of getting to know your neighbors and just being active in the community. I think that's I think that's really key. Well, and I think even with our parents and our grandparents, I think that the the way that they went about it is, is different for us. I mean, they could actually sit back and watch and we don't have that luxury anymore. Yep. So I'd ask you if you, if it came down to it and you can only make one change and that's all you could in your entire career was make one change. What, what would that be? A one change in Congress. So yeah, Congress. Mean, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would get rid of the, the, the vaccine and the mask mandates and just pass a law that says that, Elected officials can never do this again. If I, if I have a magic wand, you can never lock down our economy again. You can never put masks. You can never force people to take a vaccine. Uh, it's a toss-up between that and fully adjudicating the election of 2020. I think that's important. But the way that COVID's been weaponized against your average Americans right now, if I could prevent that from ever happening again, I, I would do it. Wonderful. Definitely making a better uh, making a better world and country for your kids. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love that you said that courage is contagious, and it's certainly more contagious than COVID. And <laughs> uh, and and people really are starved for leadership. Uh, th- just this month, I, I had two very different experiences at the post office. Of course, you know, I'm the only one in there without a mask on, and and this woman starts videoing me and and yelling at me, and it was it was crazy. And uh, then the next time I went there huge lines, obviously Christmas time and people were confused, you know, which line to get in. I just started talking to people, same thing, no mask and said, Hey, you know, are you here for the lobby or the machine? Let's get two lines going people. 
And then, you know, people are letting people go in front of them. People are carrying things for the people. People are holding doors. And so, yeah, I mean, leadership, courage, it, it's all contagious. Uh, what, what have been some, you mentioned community with, with the school situation. What have been some other highlights just in, in your immediate uh, circle of influence? Yeah, I think in the race, since I've kind of put myself out there, you know, hey, I'm running for Congress. I'm pushing back against all these different things. What's really been cool is there's been a lot of, I'd say, you know, just natural leaders that have stepped forward and said, hey, this issue is really important to me. Can you help me highlight it? But they're the ones that are doing the vast majority of the work. So I've had some absolute, you know, crusaders, moms and dads that have been going to these school board meetings, having their voices heard, whether it's about mask mandates, whether it's about CRT, um, all that type of stuff. And they've done a ton of research. I can go, they can be my touch point when I say, hey, what can the schools do? I can, as opposed to having to Google stuff, I can go to them because they've already fought these battles. You know, and it's the same thing with folks that are, have been knee deep in a lot of the election issues we've had in Washington state. So I'm part of a lawsuit right now that's suing for a full forensic audit. I know people that have uh, been election observers and they're, they're very well versed in all the different regulations that go behind that, exactly the nuts and bolts are how our elections work. And so being able to, and there's, there's multiple examples too, the medical freedom people, absolutely key. A lot of the local law enforcement, because Washington State, we just had those god-awful law enforcement bill passed that makes it so that the police can't really actually go out and proactively police. So I've, I've made a lot of good relationships with folks in law enforcement that I can use as a touch point too for specific law enforcement issues. And being able to just kind of connect those dots, I, I think that that's just been really, really key. And I'm like, hey, I didn't really do anything other than announce that I'm running for Congress. But all these other people have kind of come out of the woodwork and said, hey, will you, will you highlight this? Or here's some information that you should know about whatever the topic is. And then now I, I have an inroad to this community and I can help every now and again connect some dots. But really, there is a lot of people out there that are, that are doing a lot of work at the local levels um, and just having a place where they can kind of all connect. And I, and I think for the, the congressional district I'm in, that my, my race has served as that function for a lot of people. And that's just been incredibly inspiring to see. And it's created a great network of just like-minded people. Like I'll have these town halls and a lot of times I'll see a lot of the same people will come out and they're just like, yeah, I just like being around you know, people that, that think alike, you know, it's kind of like, that's, that's something that we've been deprived of in our, you know, modern technology-based world. And then especially since COVID kicked in, it's just nice to get like-minded folks together and just build a community. Well, along with attracting a bunch of like-minded people, I'm sure that being in the public eye at this point, you're attracting a lot of the exact opposite as well. <laughs> I'm curious what you're doing to uh, to protect yourself and build yourself up emotionally, physically, mentally, yeah. and, and the same for your kids. Yeah, I'm trying to keep my kids away from it as much as possible. I mean, luckily, they're still pretty young. So I, I think this would be very different. If I had like teenagers or something like that, I, I think this would be it would have been a much harder decision for me to make because they would be subjected to all the social media, all that type of scrutiny, um, keeping them as isolated as I can from it, especially in our local community, just having them surrounded by good people um, at the Christian schools and our church. That's been absolutely key. Having them close to my family, my family close, that's been critical. Um, and, and for me, the way I look at it is this is war. In my old job, people tried to kill me. And after, after that happens so much, you kind of don't even take it personal anymore. And so now like, I don't know, like, you're going to tweet some mean stuff about me on Twitter, or, you know, you're going to cut up a video and try and make me sound dumb. Like, all right, cool. That's fine. <laughs> it is what it is, man. Uh, I, I'm, I'm fully prepared for that. I, I work out a lot for stress relief. That's kind of my thing. Um, but yeah, and then just trying to stay, you know, you got to stay situationally aware because we do have some, you know, Antifa types that want to come and, and start problems, but we haven't had very much of that. And, like I said, giving, having the like-minded community, I've, I've got a lot of guys that uh, that definitely have my back right now, which is which is pretty amazing. So the the mean words don't hurt, huh? They're not near no. as, as as scary as the bullets flying. No, not really. I mean, and, and the mean words too kind of let you know it's like, okay, well, if if I was nobody, these guys wouldn't even be paying attention to me. But if I got the Washington Post and MSNBC and all these guys like trying to paint it like I'm some sort of whack job out there like okay that's actually it's kind of a good thing i mean it's not they they find a not flattering picture or they you know take my words out of context it's okay or there's some kid making a meme of me on the internet and sometimes the memes are kind of funny so you know it's a, it's when yeah. you have enough haters that you finally know you're doing something right that's right yeah yep man i i love that so why why congress yeah i i'm i'm ready to get joe kent for president here <laughs> <laughs> Gotta start somewhere. I mean, no, for me, really, like it, it just the third district is so special because it's this conservative bastion. The third district is one of two 
red districts that touch the Pacific Ocean and the whole continental United States. So Alaska's red. But other than that, there's one down in California and there's Washington, Washington's third, which is a stone's throw away from Portland, Oregon. So for me, militarily, I'm like, this is critical terrain right here. The left wants to connect Portland, Olympia, and Seattle, and they've got this red thorn in their side. So why don't we keep it? Why don't we hold it? And why don't we make it a place like a bastion of just really strong conservatives that counter out everything coming from Olympia and coming from Portland? So for me, I, I just think it's a, it's a great fight to be in. And I think it's important, too, because I think out here on the West Coast, you know, everybody thinks that California, Oregon and Washington are just these like they're lost. Like Everybody out there is Seattle or they're Portland or they're Los Angeles. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, we they're red states that were just dominated by these couple major cities. And so I think letting the rest of the country know that, hey, there is there's the pioneer spirit alive in the West still and there's still conservative values out here. I think that's incredibly important. No, I, I 100% agree. So, you know, what what do you think is going to be the tipping point? Obviously, your I, campaign is huge, but I like I look at Lauren Culp and, and I, I think mm -hmm. he, he should have won. Yeah. What, when do you think we'll, we'll see more of these ripples come through Washington? Well, I mean, I think it's starting now. I think um, I'm glad you brought up like Lauren Culp. I mean, the, the Culp campaign, I think, gave the, the biggest challenge we've had to the, the, the Democrat, you know, kingdom of King County and Seattle that we've had in a long time. And I personally think Warren, I mean, I hope his lawsuit continues. I hope we get full forensic audits in all these places. I mean, if he didn't win, he got closer than any Republicans gotten in a long time. And that's because he went out to every corner of Washington state. And he just talked to people like normal people. You know, he just talked like a normal person. He identified what the problems were and he had solutions and people really rallied behind that. And that resonated with people. And I think that momentum's continuing. I think Jamie Herrera Butler, Dan Newhouse, I think they read it wrong. I think they were they were looking at the reflections of what was going on in the Bellway with the lobbyists, and they made their decision to vote for impeachment based off that, not based off what their people wanted. So I, I think the next inflection point is going to be the 2022 elections. There was some really good news that came out of the, the nonpartisan races in 21. I mean, Seattle, they elected a Republican, you know, city attorney. I mean, in Seattle, in Sandy, you know, miles away. I think like a couple blocks away from where the Chaz was. I mean, talk about, you know, epic. I mean, everybody's looking at New Jersey and Virginia because that was big news. They're looking at the trucker out there that won in, in New Jersey, and that was awesome. But that night, I was like, oh, my God, Seattle just had a, they just elected a Republican. There's there's some red pills going on there. And so I think 22 is going to be the next one. Um, if we continue to put our, our, our shoulder to the wheel, get people out there to vote. I mean, I know there's a lot of God-fearing conservatives that are just like, my vote doesn't matter. I'm not going to participate. So reach out to those people, and I, I think we'll take the country back in, the, in a very big way. 22 is going to be critical because if we if we don't take back the House and we don't take back the Senate, just look at what the Biden administration has done in the 11 months they've had power. We're not even at 11 months yet. They've had power. And, and here we are um, in the state that we're in. Give them three more of those. We have to win in 22 so that we can just resist them as hard as possible, not let them move their agenda one inch forward for two more years. I mean, that's that that's going to give us the fighting chance. So 22 is absolutely a, a critical inflection point. We had a, a senator in our state that said he needed to vote with his conscience rather than what the people had elected him for. So my question for you is, how do you find that balance? And how do you, I mean, if you're faced with that and your conscience says one thing, but your constituents say something else, how, how do you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, relying on my faith and, and what I think the right thing to do is going to be absolutely key. But open dialogue is key. I mean, when you when you find guys like Mitt Romney or Jamie Herr Butler, and they're like, oh, my conscience, I, I couldn't go with what the will of the people says. If you look at how long that those guys have been in office, they are so disconnected from what the people in their state, what the people in their district actually want. And a lot of this goes back to how you win these races with money. You have the lobbyists and the special interests basically line your re-election campaign, and you don't need to go out and talk to people. You don't have to do you don't have to do podcasts. You don't have to do town halls because all you, you get all your money that way. You don't have to go ask people for money and engage with them. So for me, I plan on staying as connected as I possibly can. So when I have a dilemma like that, I'm not going to go consult whatever super PAC is funding me because I don't have any. Um, I'm going to be able to go back to Washington State and be like, hey guys. This is this is this is where my heart and my head is at right now, and here's why. Tell me where you stand, and I and I know there's going to be times where I'm going to really 
you know, probably tick off, you know, 49% of the people and 51% are mad at me, or maybe even vice versa. But I, I want the people there to actually feel like it was a conversation. Um, in today's day and age, especially with technology, there's no reason why I can't have that conversation with my constituents. But when you get guys like Romney and, and people like Jamie Herrera Butler, I mean, Jamie Herrera Butler hasn't done an in-person town hall in the district in like six years. And that's just because her, she gets finance from the Beltway. So I, I think having a two-way communication, because we disagree with people all the time in our regular lives. We disagree with our spouses in our regular lives. But as long as there was a dialogue about it and people understand, you understand where the other person's coming from, people are reasonable. I, I think they're going to uh, respect that. What people don't like is they don't like not being heard. They can't just wake up one day and I did a vote out of left field to impeach a president with no, no evidence. And then me come back and say, well, that was my conscience. What are you guys all mad about? Like, it just doesn't work that way. So having said that with the people being in there too long, would you, would, do you believe that term limits are something that should be for Congress and for Senate? Yeah, I do. I've already signed a pledge for term limits. So I, I want to do at, at most, if things go well, and I get elected, I want to do three cycles. So six years, I think somewhere in the six to eight year mark is absolutely critical. I mean, our founders never intended for anybody to be a career politician. Yet, lo and behold, the people that write the laws, they've never written a law about their own term limits. Go figure. You know, human nature. Why would you put yourself out of a job? Um, but I think it's critical. I mean, I, I think even the woman who I'm primary, Jim Herrera Butler, I, I think probably five, six years ago, she was probably okay. Um, she had an okay record back then. She was still doing town halls. But then they hit that point where they've just been in Washington, D.C. for so long. And D.C. has ran off of money and power. And it's incredibly easy to, to buy people's votes. It's not this like back, back alley corruption that you envision like from the movies. It's the subtle corruption where people come in and they're like, hey, I can fund your reelection campaign. I just need you to vote a certain way. And that's that's what's happened. And that's leaving people in D.C. for that long is exactly that type of it breeds that type of climate. So I think making politicians switch out and it would also, I think, give more onus on the people. I don't think we should ever get comfortable as a as a populist just voting for this one person because they're in that political party and they've been there for so long. We should actually have have, have to have the architecture back home to say, OK, who, who are we going to run next? We know that Joe's done in six years. Who here is going to go after his seat? Who's the, who's that person that we're going to all push forward and get behind? Or who are the three or four people that need to compete for it? We can start having town halls now. We can start having engagements with these people before we're we're on some like one year crunch or some six month crunch. I I love that that answer. That is really really inspired and inspiring, Joe. You mentioned you exercise as kind of stress relief. What what do your typical workouts look like? Um, so I, I do a lot of, uh, I used to do a lot of running and then when I got out of the military, I did, I do less running. So that's because I, I work out really early when the kids are sleeping. So I got a garage gym. So I do a, you know, just classic strength training. I do some CrossFit type of high intensity stuff as well. I row a good deal because it's, uh, you know, pretty low impact, but still kind of a lot of bang for your buck. So do that. I was into jujitsu for a while. I've actually got a good deal of support from my, my local jujitsu gym. I'm like a perpetual white belt because like I'll pick it up for a little bit and I'll get busy. Uh, but I still like jujitsu, even though I kind of get my butt kicked a lot. I think it's great. Uh, it's great mentally and physically and camaraderie wise. I think it's absolutely excellent. My kids are in a wrestling program right now. I think that's key for little boys to get out there and, and get 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 a positive uh, a positive way to channel a lot of that little boy aggression. Um, is absolutely critical. So I, I, I can't say enough about the, the physical, the mind, body, spirit connection. I think if you, if you have a healthy body um, and you're, you're exercising and you're physically capable, you're just more prepared to take on everything that life throws at you. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe that you can reach your peak in all, in all areas of your life without also being physically fit. I yeah. mean, it, and you getting your boys out there, teaching them how to embrace conflict at an early age will prove yeah. super advantageous later on, I believe. Oh, I agree, man. I, I learned a good deal uh, getting my butt kicked. I was I, I played football and I wrestled and I don't think I was particularly good at either one of them, but just the discipline of going to practice every day. And hey, you win some, you lose some. If you want to win, you work hard uh, every now and again, you, you get the you get the snot knocked out of you. I mean, that's just life. Right. And so I, I think it's important for some reason. Our society has tried to breed that out of our culture, but in particular, of young men, it, it's crazy to me. 
I had my kids in a uh, in a pre-K real briefly where like they they freaked out whenever the little boys would wrestle <laughs> and it was just the most foreign thing in the world to me I'm like you realize that like little boys wrestling is pretty much like that's just hardwired into them and so it's 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 on the parents to find a positive outlet for it but I think finding those positive outlets, especially for young men, is just absolutely critical. For some reason, modern society absolutely is trying to attack that right now. Yeah, as a as a father of three girls, scares me to death of the the men that that there will be that will be their options when it comes for yeah. them to get married. Are they going to be strong men that can embrace conflict, that know how to fight, maybe lose a fight, but be willing right. to embrace it should they have to do so? And uh, yeah. that 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 worries me on a regular basis. Yeah, it's going to have very negative societal uh, effects, I think, further down the line. I think we've already seen it like a little bit in our generation, um, just how easy it is for bullies essentially to come and, and have their way with society because we've bred conflict out of our society. We've, we've bred the ability to stand up for yourself. It's really weird what I think we've done. We've, we've taken the tools of violence and we've made them so forbidden that only bad people who are willing to tap into violence, they're the only ones that actually know how to use it. And so we've taken out the whole, you know, it's cliche, but we've taken out the whole sheepdog. All the guys that were told that that wanted to go out and wrestle and they wanted to fight and they wanted to have these confrontations. Society has said like, that's toxic masculinity. That's, you know, that's just bad. You don't want to do that. You want to talk it out every single time. And that's, and, you know, there's a time to talk, but there's also a time to fight. And that was, I mean, that was, that was bred into me. Uh, hardwired by nature, but then my, my dad would always told me that, hey, there's a time for you to stand your ground and to fight. You can't back down. You can't talk to some people. You have to fight. And if you look at what's happening right now in society with the COVID lockdowns or, or whatever example you want to use, I just see the realm of violence is complete. The monopoly of violence right now is completely dominated almost entirely by bad people because it's been taken away from good people. Yeah, I, I think we we avoid it way too much, way too much. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was taught that don't start a fight, but you can end it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah. I remember one time, this is, you know, anecdotally, I had this, I was at a softball game. My dad was playing softball and he was standing on third base and the third baseman was 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 caught, was complaining about the lady in the crowd that was yelling and it just happened to my mom, be my mom. And so my dad looked at him and said, you want to do something about this? The guy said, yeah, let's do it again. My dad said, "Never mind." He goes, you know what? After the game, my 16 year old's going to beat you up. And so there I am, we're trying to leave the game and I start walking out. My dad goes, where are you going? I said, what do you mean? I'm, we're going home. He goes, no, you've got to fight. <laughs> so I stood there in the parking lot. The guy never showed up, but, but there I was, I, I was ready. Cause my dad was saying, no, you're going to embrace this conflict and you're going to learn how to do it. Now that's not always the right example by any means, but uh, I wasn't afraid to do it because because it was put out there. Yeah, I mean, there's a time and place for that. There, there's bullies in life, and, and if bullies don't have somebody stand up to them and occasionally punch them in the nose, like they just keep taking more and more. And and here we are in society right now where we have a bunch of bullies. They look like the government. They look like you know the COVID Nazis, but that's what's happening right now all, all over society. So yeah, I mean, teaching that teaching that to to young men and to young women too. You know, that you don't have to take it. There's a time for you to stand and fight. I think is absolutely critical. Absolutely. Well, and I'm so glad to hear that that you like jujitsu. I'll, I'll have to to come down your way, and we'll we'll get some rolls in. Yeah, man. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for your time. This has been a, an absolute privilege for for us, and I know that the country, and, and particularly the the people of District Three, are in very good hands with you. So, so what's next? What can we do to to support you? Where where can people find you? Yeah, JoeKentForCongress.com is kind of the touch point for everything. Um, that's where you can make a donation. I'm not taking any big super uh, super PAC, corporate PAC money, running all entirely on individual donations. So five, 10, 15 bucks really helps. But for people who can't donate, you can volunteer. If you're in the district or just outside the district, there's a volunteer link on there. It'll get you on of our, our text and email distro. You can come out to different events. There's an event tab on there too. We've done well over, I think, 110 in-person events, which are usually town halls. I like to interact and answer questions. So I encourage people to look on there, see we'll be somewhere near them if they're in the district, come on out. Um, but if you're way outside the district, obviously, uh, and you can't donate, all the social media shares, like that really does help. I mean, this is this is an information and a media war and it, as toxic and horrible as the, the battlefield that social media is, um, uh, sharing the content really helps because if you share it with 510, you know, people that are in your social network, 
a couple of them may be able to donate. They might be able to share it further on. And that's just really how we, we take our country back as grassroots. So JoeKentForCongress.com is the, is the place to do all that. Well, awesome. Thank you again. Thank you so much for, for your time tonight. And okay. this is, has been an absolute honor. Is, is there anything else you, you want to say before we sign off? No, I, mean, I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, everybody just stay motivated, stay positive. I think that the momentum is in our favor, no matter how bleak it looks. The reason why the left and Biden and Inslee are cracking down as hard as they are right now is because we're winning. So get out there, get involved, talk to your neighbors, register people to vote, and then just keep the faith because we're going to take our country back. Joe, thank you so much to you and your wife for your sacrifices for this country and, uh, and thank good you. luck. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. Absolutely, Joe. We we will not forget Shannon, and and we salute you and her, and and God bless you, and God bless America. Thanks, guys. God bless. Take care. Thank you. All right. Thank you, listeners. Until next time. This has been Joe and Tom and Brett. Out. <laughs>